Welcome, everyone. This is Steve Ray at NIST. The date is February 22nd, 2007, and we are embarking upon the mini-series on the Ontolog Forum uh, on evaluating ontologies, or really evaluating systems in general, because um, today I'm very happy that uh, Michael Grunninger from University of Toronto and Conrad Bach from NIST have graciously agreed to uh, tag-team on today's talk on evaluating reasoning systems with a pers particular perspective on the languages underlying reasoning systems. And again, for the record, I want to thank you both, Michael and Conrad, for the extra time you put in to do this. I realize it's not on either of your critical paths, so uh, please accept my own uh, appreciation for that. And um, uh, basically, this talk stems out of um, a report that we all did here at NIST when Michael was, was at NIST with us, uh, along with some other people I'm sure you'll get into in a moment, for the NSA. So uh, it, it was uh, when I first encountered the report, which was a result of all this, I was uh, blown away by the comprehensiveness of it. So I, it was a formidable report, in my mind anyway. So anyway, I'm, I'm really happy that we're going to have an opportunity to uh, sort of get a, a walkthrough of the findings of that work on the part of all the people involved. Uh, Michael or Conrad, who's going to be kicking this off? Uh, well, I guess I was going to uh, be doing most of the talking. <laughs> okay, all right. Conrad, did you, did you have any opening comments? The, uh, the, the report is actually in a number of sections, and it's too long to present as in one call, so... Today we were going to focus on the section that covers ontology languages. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll be quiet and uh, sit back and listen. And uh, I guess Michael, in that case, why don't you take it away? Uh, as Conrad and Steve were saying, this is in the context of evaluating reasoning systems, but particularly in the light of uh, a lot of the email discussions um, on Ontolog Forum, uh, we decided to focus, especially today, on uh, ontology languages. Uh, so if you move to slide two, uh, Mike Ushold and I had, had kind of always been using uh, a fairly kind of broad uh, definition uh, of an ontology. It seemed to kind of capture dip people's different efforts. Uh, and, and in this approach, we were saying, well, an ontology includes uh, a declaration of, of terminology you use in some, some domain together with a specification of the meaning uh, or the semantics of those terms. And this seemed to kind of cover almost every effort uh, using ontologies. And it was just that different approaches would be using different languages for the specification of the meaning. Now, if we move to slide three, this led to the famous uh, semantic spectrum uh, diagram, of which you see here, see here a, a particular version of it, kind of pared down a little bit. Don't want to overload a lot of details. Um, and in a lot of ways, what we'll be talking about today is putting this uh, semantic spectrum on firm footing uh, from a logical, theoretical perspective. Uh, and we will primarily be focusing on the languages for uh, formal ontologies uh, in, in the slide here. They're in blue. And, and they're to the, the right-hand side of this. Uh, there's a black line that kind of comes cuts uh, through the, the spectrum. And uh, this line is effectively... Uh, languages to the right of this line are languages that are uh, used in reasoning systems. So as, as you were saying before, I mean, this, this whole report was in the context of evaluating reasoning systems. And so it was focusing on those ontology languages 
that supported uh, reasoning. And, and we'll be getting into a lot of the, the uh, like I say, underlying mechanisms and techniques for saying, you know, where do you place a particular language on this spectrum. Uh, we're not going to be talking about specific ontologies, although we'll be, we will be referencing a few. Uh, the emphasis here is on on uh, languages that can be used to specify ontologies and their various properties. And hopefully maybe what we can get out of this and some of the discussion afterwards uh, will be uh, maybe some deliverables that can kind of feed into the upcoming uh, ontology summit uh, at NIST in April uh, in regards to some benchmark problems that we would be uh, working on. Okay, if we move to slide three. Well, what do we mean by an ontology language? Um, as, as with almost every word that we use in this group, there every word is just packed with meaning, overloaded with meaning. Uh, language is one of those words. Um, <clears throat> when we're talking uh, about an ontology language in this in this work, uh, we were uh, referring to a formal language. Okay, so a formal language uh, has uh, one one aspect it has is syntax. So, and you can break the syntax down into uh, you know, several categories. One category is the, the basic set of symbols that you are using. And the symbols kind of come in two, two varieties as well. One kind of symbol that we call the logical lexicon um, are, are things like connectives, uh, you know, and, or, not. Uh, and sometimes uh, some languages include things like uh, quantifiers. So you can talk about for all things in a particular class or there exists some element with some properties. Uh, so those basic symbols are what we would call the logical lexicon. Uh, and also there's another set of symbols um, that are often referred to as the non-logical lexicon. Uh, these are symbols that are actually representing the vocabulary for your concepts. So uh, if you were talking uh, uh, you know, about a shape ontology, then that non-logical lexicon would you know, include things like you know, maybe circle and square and cube and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and also, uh, the, the final element of syntax is, is the grammar. We're basically telling you, given that you have all these symbols, these logical symbols, how do you combine them into uh, in, in ways that, that make a grammatical sense? <clears throat> uh, the second element uh, of an ontology language is the notion of semantics. And that's going to be the bulk of what we'll be talking about today, um, the, this notion of, of what, you know, what does it mean for a language to have a semantics in the context of, of uh, applications of ontologies? Uh, and how can we use the different notions of semantics as a way of comparing languages? Uh, and then finally, uh, one of the aspects of languages is, is um, referred to as proof theory. Uh, and these are our syntactic methods that can be used to infer new sentences. So this is, you know, like deduction. And... Uh, this played a big role, I'd say, in the rest of the report because it was is evaluating reasoning systems. Uh, today, we will briefly touch upon on, on uh, aspects of, of proof, but only as it relates to to the semantics. And I say there'll be uh, some slides later on that talk about that relationship. <clears throat> uh, so, if you just move to the next slide, uh, just to give a, uh, you know some examples, uh, this is from first order logic. I just you know picking one kind of example. Uh, in this case here, the, the logical lexicon uh, uh, in the syntax of first-order logic are symbols like for all, exists, and, or, not, uh, if, representing implication, and IFF, representing uh, equivalence. And, and in logic, there are, are first-order logic, there are, are, are uh, inference rules. Uh, I give a couple of examples here. Um, one one you know, classical one, the modus ponens, if P implies Q and P, then you can infer Q. 
Um, another inference rule uh, that's used by um, almost every uh, automated deduction um, uh, system uh, around is called resolution, uh, where if you have one expression that's not P or Q and you have another expression that's P or R, you can infer Q or R from those. And like I say, that's pretty well used in every uh, um, automated deduction system that people use. So if we move to slide six, I mean, th this is where we really want to get into this notion of semantics. And, and again, the word semantics, incredibly overloaded. Um, even even uh, talking, say, with programming language uh, semantics people, they use semantics in, in slightly different ways. But uh, you know, essentially, when we're talking about semantics, we're really talking about the, the minimal formal description um, of, of the logic and its relationship to the, between uh, symbols that's sufficient to establish uh, uh, the notion of a truth assignment. So that's kind of why the fundamental core here is this ability to say, uh, you know, this particular expression is true or false. Uh, and and uh, so in order to kind of get to that point, there's a, a little bit of machinery, uh, logical machinery that's required here. Um, and, and at the heart of it is this notion of an interpretation. Uh, so what, what interpretation is, it, it's a mapping from the syntax, okay, from the symbols in your language uh, to elements in interpretation. <clears throat> so typically you have a, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you, in an interpretation, you introduce some kind of domain. Uh, different names in the syntax uh, denote objects in the domain. Uh, and there can be various properties and relationships among these, uh, among these elements. And uh, these are, are often represented by, by predicates in some way. And these predicates can have some kind of associated uh, extension. In other words, the, the, uh, the sets or the pairs of elements or the triples of elements that are intuitively associated with the, with the um, extension of that predicate, the meaning of that predicate. And, and since the syntax is often uh, specified uh, what's known as recursively, so when you define the syntax, you kind of define the basic building blocks, and then you say, well, if, if, if P and Q are, are, are well-formed formulas, then uh, I can take P and Q, and that new formula is also well-formed. And you, you build the, 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 uh, the well-formed formulas up uh, in this way to get, when you specify the syntax. And, and uh, similarly, the way that interpretations are specified is also this, in its compositional way. So you value to atomic expressions, atomic expression being like, say, a particular predicate. <clears throat> and you can say, well, you know, if uh, uh, parent of Fred, if, if uh, Fred is the parent of Pebbles uh, is true, then I can take that and say Fred is the parent of Pebbles and Fred is the husband of, of uh, Wilma and can talk about the truth uh, value of, the, of that new, more complicated formula. So you can compose the, the, the um, you, you can define the truth values for the primitive expressions and use the syntax to tell you how the truth, ex, uh, the truth values of more complicated expressions can be expressed or defined in terms of the truth value of its sub-expressions. So if we move to, to slide seven, <coughs> Here's where we get to some of the, the key semantic notions. So, so again, what we're getting at with semantics is this notion of interpretation um, uh, of, the, of the various expressions in our language so we can uh, say what's true or false. Um, but the, the, the real power kind of comes out of the concepts uh, on this slide, slide seven. 
Um, first of all, there's this notion of, of satisfiability. Uh, so we want to say that, that a sentence is true in some interpretation. Now, this is a pretty important property um, that you want to be able to say because uh, when we build ontologies, we want to, to, uh, to be able to say, well, you know, my ontology is in some way consistent, you know, that it, it, it's uh, not expressing something that's, that's uh, a log you know, logically a contradiction. And satisfiability is the, the corresponding semantic notion to consistency. Right, so we want to be able to say, if I write down an ontology, then it's, uh, it'll, it'll be satisfiable if I can you know, kind of construct an interpretation that makes the, the sentences in my ontology true. If we just skip ahead to slide eight uh, for a second, um, here's a particular uh, theory. There's two sentences. This is in the, the, the syntax of the common logic interchange format. Uh, the question marks there are, are kind of used, being used to denote uh, variables in this particular example, left over from, from KIF, the knowledge interchange format. Um, and, and in this, uh, there, there's two expressions here. Um, one says uh, if X is before Y and Y is before Z, then X is before Z. Uh, and the other sentence says, well, if X is before Y, then it's not the case that Y is before X. Okay, so these are two sentences, in, in this case, in, in first-order logic, and these two sentences are satisfiable. Um, you can construct an interpretation that makes both of those sentences true, and, and again, typically when people specify interpretation, um, they kind of fall back and, and use different mathematical structures to, to kind of uh, use, supply the, uh, the, the underlying structure to do the truth assignment. And, and, and this particular theory here, these two sentences, uh, this is satisfiable because I can take any what's known as a partial ordering and it will make those two sentences true. And, and examples of partial orderings would be, say, uh, like an an the ancestor relation in a, in a genealogy database. Um, or you could have the, uh, a supervisor's relation within, a, within an, uh, an organization, right? So that means you can, you can say that uh, Alice supervises Bob and Alice supervises Carol, um, Bob and Carol, they don't supervise each other. They're kind of independent of each other. That's, that's you know, an example of a partial ordering. Uh, or or in, in some examples of, of uh, a part of relation. You can say two components are part of a given assembly, but they're not parts uh, of each other. Those are all examples of, of, of partial orderings. And uh, those would be examples that would, once you formalize these in mathematical structures, you could say, yes, they make those two um, sentences true. So if you go back to slide seven, um, there's a couple of other, there's several other uh, of these kind of semantic notions. Uh, another one is validity, which would mean a sentence is satisfied in all possible interpretations. Um, a, a kind of a, a, a generalization of that is what's known as, as entailment. So this is when you can say, um, uh, if I'm given a particular theory or set of sentences, uh, I might want to say, well, if I look at all possible interpretations uh, of that particular theory, are there other sentences that are satisfied in all of those models? Uh, so this is the, kind of the notion of, of logical consequence. Um, and if we just skip ahead to, say, slide uh, 9, um, there's a sentence there that says, uh, for any object X, uh, X is not before X. So X is not before itself. Now, this sentence is entailed, the logical consequence, uh, of those two sentences um, on, on slide 8. Right. So again, what that means is, if you take any truth assignment, any interpretation, 
uh, that that makes those two sentences uh, true, right on slide eight, then it will also make the sentence, um, the first sentence here on slide nine, it will also make it true. Okay, so that's the, the notion of of a uh, of one sentence being entailed or a logical consequence of of the um, of a, of a theory. Now, again, these are all kind of semantic notions. We're talking in terms of, of, of semantics and truth assignments. And I mean, if you really want to, uh, to be able to use ontologies, um, we'll eventually want to kind of be able to attach this in some way to inference. Uh, but we'll be getting to more of that later. So if we slip, uh, uh, go back to slide seven, um, again, there's two final, two final notions, um, semantic notions here. Uh, one, the notion of logical equivalence. So you can say that two theories have the same or, or an equivalent um, set of models. Uh, and finally, you can talk about logical independence. Um, so you can say a sentence is independent of a theory if you can construct a satisfying interpretation or model uh, that makes it true, or you can construct a model of the theory that makes the sentence false. Now, these uh, these thematic notions, like I say, they're not. Um, it's not just you know elegant uh, theoretically. They, this, these have a lot of applications uh, in ontology design. Uh, the notion of, uh, of logical independence plays a big role when you are building uh, libraries uh, of ontologies, um, particularly when you get to uh, say um, organizations like what uh, John Sowa calls his lattice of theories. Uh, I mean, you want to be able to say that I can have one. Uh, uh, ontology and I can add further sentences to it and you could take the same ontology and add a different set of sentences uh, and if these if, if your sentences are kind of are, are logically independent of the theory then you're actually building kind of a new ontology that's extending those old concepts uh, in, in some way and we can have we can ex extend uh, the same ontology in different ways and so then we'd want to be able to say well um, is my extension of this uh, um, or shared ontology the same as yours? And we might say, well, are they logically equivalent to each other? Um, is there is there a sentence that can be entailed by my ontology that can't be entailed by your ontology? And these would be ways of of comparing different ontologies um, to be able to show the different kinds of relationships, right? If two ontologies are actually logically equivalent, well, hey. Uh, you know, then in some sense they're this, kind of the same ontology, maybe just using different sets of sentences to define the same ideas. And so, um, you know, again, what we want to be able to have uh, when we are talking about these formal ontology languages is enough of this machinery in, this, in the semantics so that we can we can uh, have these semantic notions like we see on slide seven and and actually. Um, uh, kind of address these questions in, in a very objective kind of way. So you're not saying, well, my ontology is, you know, better than yours or my ontology, you know, your ontology is better than mine. But we can actually say, well, these two ontologies are different because one entails one sentence and, and the other one does not entail that sentence. And then it's up to uh, the, the domain experts to kind of say, well, you know, we want an ontology that, that has that property or not. Um, okay, so if we move to slide uh, 10, uh, we encounter uh, another um, semantic notion, and in a lot of ways, uh, kind of based on, on the email uh, uh, kind of discussions on, uh, you know, on uh, ontology languages that have been both on the ontolog list and in, in previous ontolog um, seminars, um, there's is this notion of definability. 
Right? The idea is very often when you, you have uh, a particular concept, um, you know, say part of, right? so if you're talking about components in, 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 in some kind of assembly, a part of relation, right? when we say, well, what's the intended semantics of that, of that concept? So again, here's this word semantics popping up again. Um, and, and this is a slightly different notion than the semantics of, of a logic that we've looked at so far, right? When we're saying the intended semantics of a concept, what we're implicitly doing is identifying uh, a particular class of models, a particular class of satisfying interpretations in a, in a language. Um, and we're saying that uh, we're effectively kind of taking a, maybe a, like more of a pragmatist approach to, uh, to semantics by saying, well, the, the mean concept will be represented by this class of interpretations that make some set of sentences true, right? So when you say, well, what does this term mean? I'll say, okay, well, here are, are uh, you know, all the different sentences that are true about this concept. It's kind of a way of, of informal way of, of kind of communicating what, that, what, that, what the meaning of that term is. Now, the interesting thing is that um, within logic, there's this notion of, of the definability of a concept within a particular language, right? So, so effectively, this intended semantics, when you're defining and specifying some class of interpretations, um, that's not necessarily committing you to a language. Um, what you can say is, I have a particular class of interpretations, and it will be definable in a particular ontology language if I can uh, uh, give you uh, a set of sentences, you know, T, in that language, such that all and only the interpretations in that, that class M are the models of T. Right? Now, equivalently, we'll say that, that T axiomatizes this class of interpretations. Right? So what this means is that this, this uh, some particular concept, a concept will be definable in that language, right, if you can build, if you write that set of axioms down, the set of sentences, and no matter how you interpret those sentences, any interpretation of those sentences will be one of the ones that's in your intended semantics. Okay, so, Michael? Sorry? I had a question, Michael. Mm -hmm. um, since interpretations on the previous slide, they're, they're mapping from the language to the universe of discourse or whatever, you can't really have an interpretation without a language, right? Well, so the idea is that um, uh, there are uh, you know, different kinds of concepts, and we'll see some examples uh, later on, that um, can, you can, we can show that they cannot be defined in first-order logic, or you can show that they cannot be defined in a, uh, a, a kind of a weak a language weaker than first-order logic. They require first-order logic or, or, you know, different kinds of concepts like that. And so th there's this need to kind of be able to talk about the concept and its intent um, and then be able to say, well, can this intended semantics be captured within a particular language? Um, it's not exactly circular. Uh, you, you, you kind of often use a particular language as a as a uh, benchmark or a, a particular pivot point um, to say, okay, well, here's a, a particular concept. And so we'll be give, we'll showing some examples and say, well, this can be expressed, this can be defined in, a, in the language of first-order logic, and there's another concept that cannot be defined in the language of first-order logic. And, and that's what I want to try to get at here. Because what you want to be able to do, I think, in general, is you really want to use the weakest possible um, logic, the weakest possible language to define your intended semantics. Um, 
So we'll be seeing some examples of this, but I just wanted to kind of raise this point um, uh, because I, I think a lot of the time when people are, are saying, well, you know, we, you need to have a particular language to represent my ontology, um, what they're really saying is the intended semantics of their concepts require that, part the, the, that particular language in order to actually write down the appropriate set of sentences. Um, so if we, if we move to, say, uh, slide 11, there's a, a, a set here of, of ontologies that have been written in first-order logic and that really require uh, first-order logic uh, in order to define the intended semantics of their terms. So uh, Pat Hayes um, gathered the uh, beautiful tech report, the, a catalog of, of uh, temporal theories. Uh, and there, these are all different ontologies uh, different ways of axiomatizing, writing sentences that are true about different concepts of time. And so there are, are these uh, partial orderings or linear orderings or time is you know, like a timeline, and you really require uh, first-order logic in order to define what that concept is. And so you'll, you'll, you'll kind of say, well, my intended semantics of time, I'm going to kind of use a particular um, you know, mathematical structure like the linear ordering to say that's the intended semantics of, of time, of, say, an ordering relation in time. And then I can say, well, what language can I use to actually axiomatize that structure? There's the PSL ontology that I've worked on, uh, process specification language. Um, there are a couple of, uh, of ontologies for geometry um, that uh, you know, have different sets of primitives, but in fact uh, equivalent um, to each other. Um, so they're in... Hilbert's geometry, there's points and lines and planes and various relations between those. And in Tarski's ontology, there's just points and various relations among them. Uh, and again, they require the underlying um, mathematical structures for geometry require first-order logic. There's several um, uh, uh, ontologies related to what's called Mirio topology, um, where you, you are talking uh, about part of relations and, and how different regions are, are connected. Um, to each other and various kinds of spatial relationships there. Uh, Pat Hayes, um, back in the mid-'80s, proposed a, a first-order theory of liquids and their various properties. And, of course, there's the uh, there's SUMO, the Suggested Upper Merge Ontology, which contains a, a vast array of, of, uh, of, of axioms written in first-order logic. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Psych also has some relationships there, but Psych's written in its own language, PsychL, which goes beyond first-order logic, so I didn't really include on this slide. But the idea is that it, there are, each of these ontologies contain certain concepts, and again, they're intended semantics. You, you need to be able to use first-order logic in order to actually um, uh, capture their, their intended semantics. Now, now, the other thing is, on slide, on slide 10, uh, definability gives us a way of, of actually comparing languages, okay, because we can now come up with this notion of expressiveness. We can say, you know, some language L1 is, is as expressive as another language L2. Um, if, if for every ex, uh, sentence in L2, you can write another sentence in L1 so that you get the same set of models, right? So, in other words, everything you can say in L1, uh, you can say using the language L2. And, in fact, the languages in the semantic spectrum that we saw on, 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 uh, on slide three are ordered by expressiveness. So languages to the right are more expressive than languages to the left. 
so what that means is that uh, if you pick uh, a concept, so on that particular slide, say there were description logics, um, they are, are, are to the left of, of, uh, of, of first-order logic. So it means that the, every concept in, in uh, description logics can, can be expressed or written as, as a sentence in first-order logic, but not the other way around. There will be sentences in first-order logic that you just cannot uh, write down uh, in, in uh, description logic. You won't get the same set of models. So the question is, well, why don't we just use uh, the most expressive language possible. So if we go to slide 13, we see the notion of decidability. And, and actually, um, decidability has played a, a pretty key role in, in uh, the development of the semantic web languages um, because one of, the, one of the motivations for um, uh, OWL incorporating a lot of description uh, logic concepts was to try to get a language that was decidable. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for a language to be decidable? Um, a, a language decidable is decidable if you can construct an algorithm that can determine uh, whether or not uh, a sentence in a language is valid, right? Or in other words, it's, it's satisfied by all the models. Right? So this is equivalent to saying that there's, you can, there's an effective way you can list all the theorems in your language, all the, the sentences that are, you know, kind of, um, like that, satisfied in all of your models. And you can have a way of listing all the, the, the ones that are invalid. Uh, you can kind of relativize this to a particular ontology and say, well, um, it will be decidable if, um, an ontology will be decidable if there's an effective way of saying what are all the sentences that are entailed by uh, that, that ontology and also a way of listing all the sentences that are satisfiable with that ontology. Now, um, could I add a, a couple uh, extra comments here, Michael? Sure. Um, just that if uh, you can have a proof for that a language is decidable, but not still not know what the algorithm is, isn't that right? That is, you can uh, prove that a language is decidable, but not yeah, by yeah, I mean, you showing what the algorithm is that uh, you would use. That's true. Yeah. Uh, although in all the languages we, we, we're talking about here, uh, you know, if a language is decidable, then there is an algorithm for doing that. They also the decision have the algorithm. Right. Yeah. But you know, you're right. It doesn't have to be a constructive proof. Uh, it doesn't have to actually provide the algorithm. Um, and also, uh, if it's decidable, that doesn't mean it's tractable. That is, the algorithm could still take an uh, um, unusably long time. Right. So I'm not uh, talking about complexity here either. So, so right, yeah, as Connor was saying, there, there is the notion of, of complexity um, in, in which, uh, you know, is that algorithm polynomial in the, the set uh, uh, of, um, in the, in the, the, yeah, is it polynomial in the size of the, uh, of the theory, uh, the set of sentences, or um, is this what's known as, as uh, NP complete, um, which means it's, it's as hard a problem um, uh, it's as hard a problem as, as determining uh, well, satisfiability, I guess. Um, so yeah, we're not talking about about uh, complexity in this case. We're just talking about decidability. Uh, now, there's a, a kind of a weaker notion which is called semi-decidable, and this a language is semi-decidable if it's if there exists a, a procedure that eventually will terminate if 
a formula is valid. So in other words, there's a way of, of listing a set of valid formulas in a language. Now, if, if we go to slide 14, um, the, the kind of the, the, the bad news is uh, first-order logic uh, is only semi-decidable. Okay, so that means that uh, if, if a particular sentence uh, really is a theorem, uh, if it is valid, then eventually your uh, inference uh, procedure will, or your, your algorithm will terminate. Um, but if it's only satisfiable, your procedure might not terminate. Uh, that, and means so there that, there's, that means that there's, uh, for a sentence where there's, uh, that's neither valid nor invalid, that is, it's not false in all models, it's not true in all models, this right. semi-decidable algorithm can't uh, give you the answer necessarily. Exactly. But if, if, but if it is false in all models, it'll tell you that. Right. Now, so, so that's kind of the you know that, that's kind of the bad news, um, say with with a language as as, as powerful as, as first order logic. Now, now it is the case actually. See, that, that's kind of a worst case scenario. Um, there actually do exist uh, first order ontologies that are decidable. So there do exist algorithms that can uh, uh, de determine uh, whether or not a particular sentence is entailed by that ontology. Now, as Conrad said, I mean that it might be intractable. I take exponential amount of time to actually come up with that decision, but they are decidable. And it, it turns out that uh, those ontologies of geometry uh, are decidable. Uh, and uh, another interesting kind of thing is uh, uh, arithmetic with the real numbers uh, is decidable, as opposed to what everyone's probably more familiar with, you know, in Gödel's theorem, that uh, natural uh, arithmetic with natural numbers, piano arithmetic, is, is undecidable. So, so I mean, this is kind of one one kind of approach to say, um, well, okay, the the language might be only decidable, but um, you know maybe the ontology we're using is decidable. That's kind of one approach. Um, but but because in general, when you're building an ontology language, you want to be able to give guarantees about any ontology you write with that language. Uh, one one other big area of, of, of research has been addressing the, the second bullet on, on slide 14. You know, can we identify um, restrictions on on the language, say in this case restrictions of first-order logic, that are decidable but still expressive enough for realistic problems, right? So, again, by expressive enough, we're saying, okay, I have some kind, I have some concept, and I need a language that is powerful enough to actually define that concept, right, to axiomatize that concept, but is still uh, decidable. Okay, so, the, so in the first bullet, the, the those problems that were uh, decidable actually didn't need all the expressiveness of first-order logic. Is that why uh, they no, – you could have used a more narrow language, and that's why they're decidable? Um, that's an, an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I suppose we could talk about that later. Um, it, it, it's – it's more to do, I think it's more accurate to, to kind of talk about the relationship. There are some kind of deep uh, kind of mathematical theories, uh, theorems around that talk uh, about uh, the relationship between the set of axioms in your ontology and whether or not they're complete enough. Uh, and if they are, then that effectively tells you that they are decidable. Um, whether or not there's a natural syntactic restriction of the language that actually gives that to you, I, I I've never actually seen that. For example, 
Um, okay. Another thing about this is that even if even if a language is undecidable, say uh, what you're saying about reasoning over the natural numbers, we know we can do arithmetic with natural numbers. So even if there's no, uh, it's undecidable in general. There are plenty of sentences which you can determine the truth value of, and we know that because we can, we do a lot of arithmetic with natural numbers and don't have a problem. So um, I just wanted to clarify that because sometimes these buckets of decidability and undecidability uh, make people reach broader conclusions than they really should. Uh, an undecidable uh, language could have all the sentences that are useful to you, and it could be uh, there could be an algorithm for deciding those. Well, that's true too. Yeah, but then you have to be very careful about what that particular class of queries would be. But yeah, you're right. Um. Where are we here? Okay, so if you move this slide, so, so again, so the, the one approach to, to uh, one way of addressing the problem of, of, of a lack of decidability is to say focus on either decidable ontologies or as Conrad was saying, you know, examine particular queries that are decidable. Uh, but again, the other approach being that uh, if you want to place a guarantee on no matter what, lang what, what ontology you write in a language, people are, are looking for restrictions. And so on slide 15, we see various uh, kinds of uh, ontology languages that are restrictions of first-order logic. And, and that's kind of one reason why um, uh, we kind of use first-order logic in this, in this work. Um, it, it provides a very good way of, of kind of comparing, provides a very good baseline for comparing these different languages. Um, because there's a... a these kinds of restrictions can be easily defined in, in first-order logic, and there's a very large body of research over the past century uh, that actually uh, addresses the limitations of first-order logic. And so very often when people are, are kind of comparing languages, it's, it's kind of often e very useful to use first-order logic as that, as that baseline. So there are kind of two main restrictions, uh, restricted languages that people have often used. Um, one is, uh, because first-order logic has quantifiers for all and exists, one kind of natural restriction is to say, well, uh, you know, we're not going to uh, let you use just arbitrary combinations of quantifiers. Um, one, one, one approach might say, okay, you're only allowed to use uh, the exists quantifier. Uh, and, and in a certain sense, um, RDF, not RDF schema, but RDF, uh, corresponds to this kind of restriction. Um, blank nodes in RDF graph uh, can be characterized as, as existentially quantified um, uh, variables, and effectively in, in a graph all you're able to do is do conjunctions. You have no negation or, um, or disjunction. Um, so, so you can have that kind of restriction. It's a very restricted language, but you know, like you can do, you can still do a fair bit with it. Um, another uh, restriction is uh, uh, only is restricting yourself to only uh, universal quantifiers. Uh, and so, this leads to the notion of, of various kinds of sentences uh, that are called uh, clauses. Uh, so, if you go to slide 16. Um, we, we see uh, some of these are the earlier examples. Um, uh, the first, the two sentences we had in our theory before, uh, these are our clauses because they have uh, only universal quantifiers. There's no existential quantifiers in there. Uh, and, and they're what's known as horn clauses um, because um, when you, if you convert it into a disjunction, 
then there is at most one uh, literal, one predicate that's not negated. Uh, and also, uh, there are no function symbols in this particular theory. Now, why is that? Why do you, you know? Why do you even care about that? Um, well, it turns out, first of all, that again, most uh, uh, of the theorem provers uh, that are in use uh, today uh, will uh, convert your particular ontology, if it's reasoning with your ontology, will convert it into uh, a set of clauses. And you know, there are various ways of, of doing that kind of conversion. Um, if you don't have function symbols, then you're in a, using a language that's called data log, which has uh, a very strong connection um, to uh, deductive databases. And if we go to slide 17, uh, it has very close relationship to the semantic web rules language, uh, SWIRL. Syntactically is uh, a language that's restricted to these data log clauses. Um, now, there are other extensions uh, based on rule ML uh, that do include kind of arbitrary clauses, but uh, the semantic web rules language syntactically um, is restricted to, uh, to clauses uh, that are, are horn. In other words, they have at most one literal that's not negated, and there are no function symbols uh, in the language. So if we go to slide 18, uh, so, so those are the, so the, the, the past couple of slides have been examples of these uh, syntactic restrictions on the language, uh, in which you're only, uh, you know, kind of re you're restricting the kinds of quantifiers that you can use. Uh, and, and, and again, I mean, this you know, this reduces the kinds of things you can express. Um, but you know, people, uh, you know, use um, uh, Swirl, the semantic web rules language, and, and logic programming languages and can express quite a few, uh, define quite a few concepts. Uh, now, there's an alternative uh, approach to defining restrictions to uh, first-order logic, uh, and that's actually kind of placing restrictions on the predicates, the, the relations that you have in your ontology, uh, in terms of the, the kinds of uh, the, the arguments that they take. So there's one kind of um, restriction to first-order logic called monadic first-order logic, uh, and in this uh, restriction, um, all predicates have uh, one argument. They're called unary. Okay, so you can't have uh, binary relations or, or, or um, more than any, any more than one um, argument to your relation. Uh, and then we say, well, that's really restricted. But in fact, taxonomies um, are definable in monadic first-order logic. Right. So uh, a little example here. You know, uh, if X is human, then X is a mammal. Um, that's the kind of, of expression that you would use in, in building up a, a taxonomy. And because you're only talking here about classes, and classes are, are most naturally represented by unity relations, uh, and a taxonomy is this uh, a set of classes that are related uh, in this way, you can define the taxonomy just using this restricted kind of, of language. And in fact, monadic first-order logic is decidable. Okay, so no matter what uh, ontology you write in, in this monadic first-order logic, it will be decidable. And you can express taxonomies here. So again, this is kind of why I, I uh, you know, introduced that notion of definability earlier, um, because you have this notion of a taxonomy, the intended semantics of, of a taxonomy. Uh, and if you want to say, well, what's the weakest language that I can use to define, to, to be able to, to capture the intended semantics of my taxonomy, if that's all you're doing, is just talking about the, the taxonomy and the relationship between the classes, 
then you can you can get by with this this uh, restricted language, and it's decidable. So again, kind of rule of thumb, you know, use the weakest possible language that you need in order to capture your intended semantics. So if we go to slide 19, um, we see probably the, the most uh, popular and widely used uh, kind of logic, particularly in the semantic web, um, that is a decidable restriction of first-order logic. Uh, and, the, and these are called description logics. Now, the, the basic element of, of a description logic is there are two kinds of relations. There are unary relations, relations that take one argument, and these represent classes, just like in the, in the monadic case. But we also include binary relations between elements of classes. And, and in description logics, these are called roles. Uh, now, but this is all with, the, you know, these are the, the two, the only two kinds of, of relations that we're, we're uh, allowed to use. Now, um, different description logics, so there's a whole family of, uh, of description logics uh, which are themselves uh, have been studied very thoroughly and which themselves are kind of ordered uh, along the lines of definability. Uh, and what, what the description logic people call constructors. Uh, and and these, are be, these are used to kind of express, to specify different concepts and roles that can be built up from, from, the simp from simpler ones. And if we go to slide 20, um, these are the constructors that's in the, the most dis the simplest description logic. Um, the, they call this description logic, uh, a lot of description logic people call this uh, AL. Um, and, and in this uh, description logic, uh, the notion of primitive concepts and primitive role, you have a top concept, a bottom concept. Um, you're able to talk about the conjunction of two uh, classes. So you can, you, given two classes, you can say, well, here's a class of all the elements that are in both of those classes, C and D. Um, I, and I can use a, a kind of universal and existential quantification to define new classes. Uh, so I can, I can define all the elements that in a particular class that play a, a particular role, or I can identify all the elements that stand in some role with respect to some other um, set of concepts. Uh, and, and so if you take these uh, constructors, uh, and this is what your description logic is, is, uh, is built on, then you will have the description logic that they call um, AL. And if we go to slide, uh, to the next slide, slide 21, uh, effectively L light corresponds to this kind of, of, of description logic. Um, the, 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 there's a, uh, another uh, flavor of, of L called LDL, the L description logic, and it contains all of these constructors you see at the bottom of this um, uh, uh, slide. And, and again, so with each constructor, like you know, negation or disjunction or um, enumerating the elements of a particular class or only allowing elements of the class to have some kind of cardinality um, in, in terms of the uh, other objects that they're related to, um, they each have a little name here. You know, so negation is traditionally called... Uh, C, and you have E, U, Q, and O, and whatever. Um, and, and so you can build different description logics by saying, well, I am using the, uh, um, I'm extending the description logic AL, and I'm including um, disjunction and existential restriction, but I'm not talking about cardinality, right? And, and so you can play that, that kind of game. And, and this is actually kind of related to, to Conrad's earlier comment 
um, related to um, tractability or complexity. Uh, so OWL and AL are, uh, are, are not only decidable, but there's a polynomial algorithm that can, that can decide uh, whether a sentence is entailed or not. Um, but when you move to, to LDL or, or these other, uh, um, other description logics that you can build by assembling these different constructors, uh, you, you begin to be, get into logics that are, are no longer polynomial. They're intractable. Uh, so if we go to slide, uh, slide 22, okay, so, so description logics are less expressive than first-order logics. Now, that's not a bad thing, right, because, uh, you know, again, description logics are decidable, and, uh, and, and, you know, if the concepts that you are trying to capture in your particular domain are actually definable in description logic, then that's probably what you should be using. Um, now, Chris Menzel and Pat Hayes have provided uh, an embedding of LDL into common logic um, so that uh, what they do is effectively they specify a set of actions in, in common logic uh, that, the mo that you, what you can do is all the models of those common logic axioms or the first order logic axioms uh, will correspond exactly to the intended semantics in the description logics. And so this provides a, this way of, of actually showing how description logics are less expressive and one of the interesting things, which I'm, I don't think was a particular explicit deliverable, and then we can maybe talk about this after, is um, providing a set of benchmark problems to help people to say, well, here's a very popular kind of concept, and it requires, uh, it, it can be expressed in description logic, but here's another concept that's very uh, widespread, and it can't be described in description logic. So that might be one interesting thing that we can try to do is come up with these benchmark problems. Um, there's like another example is the owl s the owl service ontology uh, for representing web services um, there are some of its axioms are written in in, in uh, owl but its intended semantics when you're talking about all these control constructs within a particular web service can't be fully defined within within owl um, that they require full first order logic to define them um, moving on to slide twenty three uh, I'm just going to go through these more quickly. Um, there, there is uh, another uh, sort of uh, extension of, of first-order languages, often called reified first-order logics. Now, th these are languages that extend the syntax of first-order logic, so they allow you to have our, our relations, predicates as arguments to predicates and, and function symbols as arguments to predicates and functions. So in some sense, the relations and the functions are elements of the domain. Um, but the model theory is still first order. Uh, now, Pat Hayes and, and uh, I think maybe Chris, has, they've given earlier talks in this forum um, on common logic. Uh, but I just kind of want to use this slide to kind of pinpoint where that fits here. Um, so common logic, uh, RTF allows this. And there's also a logic programming language called HiLog, which also does this. Um, allows you to have predicates as, as objects in your domain, but still maintains uh, first order logic. Um, now, if we move to slide 25, then, so there are, uh, even though first-order logic itself um, is, is quite powerful, there are still concepts that cannot be defined in first-order logic. Uh, one example uh, is, is what's known as transitive closure, and, and you encounter this uh, every time you use, say, the ancestor relation, right? So you can say, well, 
uh, if A is the parent of B, then A is an ancestor of B. Uh, and if uh, A is an ancestor of B and B is a parent of C, then A is an ancestor of C. Uh, so if you want to be able to get, uh, given a particular person, find all the ancestors, uh, you need you are going to be doing this transitive closure, right? You want to get all the parents of that person, all the grandparents, all the great grandparents, etc. Great, uh, great, great, great grandparents, and all the way up. Uh, so that, but that, that notion of transitive closure is not definable in first order logic. So that means is um, if, if you took all all the sentences, all the first order logic sentences that were true about transitive closure, there would still exist. Uh, models of those axioms in which the result was, was not actually transitive closure. Uh, the same thing with this uh, class of uh, connected graphs. If you have an arbitrary graph and you want to determine whether two elements are connected, the same thing. You, no matter what set of axioms you would have, all, if you took all the sentences that were true about connected graphs, there would also be a, a graph that was not connected that would still satisfy all those axioms. And also finite state automata, the same sort of thing. Um, very loosey-goosey sort of, of kind of heuristic for, for you know, why these concepts are not definable in first-order logic is whenever, they have to, whenever you have the notion of finiteness, first-order logic has a problem with that. Uh, and so first finite, some finite state automata can't be um, expressed in, in first-order logic. So various logics have been defined to, to go beyond first-order logic. So there's a transitive closure logic that uh, allows you to talk about the transitive closure of, of your relations. Um, there's a, a kind of second-order logic called monadic second-order logic where uh, in regular first-order logic, logic, you only quantify over your domain. Um, in second-order logic, you can quantify over relations. Now, in, in monadic second-order logic, you, you're only allowed to quantify over unary relations, over, say, over classes. Um, now, it turns out that in this language, you can define uh, connected graphs and, and finite state automata. Um, if you move to full second-order logic, where you can quantify over all possible relations, then you know, this is probably you know, one of the most powerful. And here you can express the model of arithmetic, um, anyway, as in, in Gould's theorem. Um, and there's a, a fourth kind of extension of first-order logic called uh, infinitary logic, where you are allowed to have potentially infinite length, formulas of infinite length. Uh, and you say, well, that's kind of odd, but in fact, uh, common logic with what are called sequence variables is, is equivalent to uh, a weaker form of, of this infinitary logic. Um, so, so these are, are different kinds of, of extensions. And if we go to slide uh, 27, there's actually this whole area of, of theoretical computer science called uh, descriptive complexity theory, where they say, you know, if given a particular complexity class, uh, is there a logic uh, such that the queries definable in that logic are precisely the queries in that complexity class? Uh, and it turns out all the, the extensions of first-order logic on, on uh, slide uh, 26 uh, correspond to different complexity classes. Um, now, you know, that's kind of, you know, interesting from the theoretical computer science perspective. But like I was saying before, say, with respect to description logics, it would be very good if we could, uh, as a kind of a community, come up with ways of, of um, providing benchmark problems, not just for these very expressive languages, but for things like description logics, where you could say, well, here's a particular concept, and it is definable in description logic or not definable. So that's kind of one, one interesting thing there. 
So if we go to slide 28, you can say, well, okay, so if there, if there are concepts that are not definable in first-order logic and you have these more expressive languages that can define them, why don't we just use them? Well, that leads to two final uh, definitions, um, the soundness um, and completeness of a logic. And here is where we can show the relationship between the semantic notions of, of entailment and satisfiability and inference or proof theory notions uh, like provable and consistent. So uh, a logic is sound um, if whenever uh, you there exists a model of a particular theory, uh, then that theory is consistent. And on slide 30, uh, a logic is complete if, if uh, whenever a theory is consistent, then there exists a model. Okay, so put these two together, what you're saying is that a logic that's sound and complete is one in which uh, entailment, semantic notion of entailment, is equivalent to the, the proof theory, the inference notion of provable. And the semantic notion of satisfiability is equivalent to the inference, the proof theory notion of consistent. So if we go to slide 31, well, first-order logic uh, is sound and complete. But all those languages that we looked at uh, earlier, uh, like on slide 26, um, they, are, they are sound, but they're not complete. Now, why would that be a problem? Well, it, the, the problem would arise from the fact that uh, if we are actually automating a lot of reasoning with ontologies, if you have a language that's incomplete, then that means that uh, there, if you have an inference procedure, it could determine, decide that some sentence is consistent when, in fact, it's not satisfiable. There doesn't exist a satisfying interpretation. In other words, you would be making a mistake. You would be saying, I believe the sentence is consistent, but it does not correspond to the intended semantics. So it's what, I, what, what I've uh, called in earlier um, talks the first-order sandwich. Um, if you go beyond first-order logic, you run into potential problems with incompleteness, but you also often have to go as far as first-order logic in order to uh, define all the concepts you want. Now, if we move to uh, slide 32, there's a, a, another kind of, of extension um, to, to uh, first-order logic and proposition logic. They're called modal logics. Um, these are extensions of the logic in which you, we include new operators, uh, often called box and diamond, um, on the sentences. And in different domains, these operators have different in, in, intended interpretations. Um, classically, these were box was necessity, something is necessarily true, and diamond was something's possibly true. Um, uh, but uh, more in, in artificial intelligence, um, sometimes boxes are, is used to represent knowledge or belief uh, or even provability. And there are all, all other um, modal logics for um, temporal reasoning, temporal concepts. And here you have modal operators like um, until, eventually, and, and then there are many others. Uh, if we go to slide 33, um, these have uh, implications for us in ontolog um, because uh, there are some ontologies like Dolce that are written using modal logics uh, and also systems like OntoClean um, use modal logics to actually analyze um, ontologies and uh, prove properties about them. Um, if we go to slide 34, we're on the home stretch here. Michael, um, are, are, Michael are modal logics within first order or are they outside? Well, um, 
modal logics, because they include that operator, those different operators, um, are, are, are stronger than first-order logic. But they're stronger than first-order logic in a different way than, say, second-order logic is. Um, maybe Chris Menzel. Stronger, stronger meaning they're more expressive? Yeah. Okay. And their yeah. semantics are different as well. They'd still, be, they'd still count as a first-order logic because there is a translation directly into, first or into a first-order theory. For not all modal logic, though. Well, for standard first-order modal yeah. logic, it just adds the usual possibility and necessity operators. Okay. So the, the, they sat, I mean, there's the general, there's, a, there's an abstract characterization of first order <clears throat> in terms of having a, a complete, uh, a compactness property and the, the so-called downward Lowenheim-Skolem property, and first order modal logic has those properties, so it is, it is first order. Oh, okay. Sorry. If, you, if you look at the semantics, right, you're just quantifying it, semantics for first order modal logic Really, you can think of it as just a, a first-order theory, where you're quantifying over possible worlds and where predicates take extensions in in worlds. So uh, it is it is fully first-order. Yeah, I, I thought there were some old logics that were not first-order, but uh, like well, but yeah, anyway, yeah. If you have that right, but that right, those are yeah. That that that's giving them a different semantics. So that's that's assigning assigning. You know, if you're using the, the box as a, as a provability predicate, then its semantics is not the standard sort of okay. um, Kripke-style possible world semantics. Okay. Um, okay, so just uh, finishing up here um, on, on, say, slide 34, um, we also covered, um, so all, all the logic that we talked about so far in, the, in this talk and in the report uh, had this particular property of, of being what's called monotonic. In other words, any inferences that you draw from a theory um, are, are still preserved even if you add more sentences to that theory. Um, but there are many scenarios in common sense reasoning that don't have this property. Um, very often, uh, sometimes you have inferences that depend on, on the failure of other inferences. So it's what's known as negation of failure or the closed world assumption. Uh, so I might not know... Um, you know, whether or not someone is attending the meeting, but if I don't see them on the list, I'm going to say, okay, well, they're not, on, they're not uh, attending the meeting. Uh, but then later on, I might get an email saying, oh, I'm going to be late, and, and the guy says, I'm going to be late, so then I, you know, I know he'll be there, and I kind of have to revise my conclusions. And logic that has this property is what's called non-monotonic. And if we go to slide 35, these actually have uh, appear a lot in... Um, the semantics of logic programs, the semantics of, of, of rule systems, even on the web. Uh, it appears in, in what are called default logics. Uh, and, and these also have, um, although there aren't a lot, of, I don't think there are a lot of ontology efforts that use these kinds of logics, you can imagine that they would require them. So, for example, you might say, well, you know, a chair typically, or by default, a chair has four legs. Um, but you could still want to allow there to be chairs that don't have legs or has some other number of legs. And so uh, these uh, default logics, um, writer's defaults and model preference defaults, allow you to write uh, those kinds of, capture those kinds of concepts. Now the problem is that non-monotonic logics aren't even sound. Um, so that can also be another uh, potential problem in their application as ontology languages. Uh, okay, so that about wraps it up. Uh, slide 36. Um, 
uh, just kind of summarizing here. So we have this uh, taxonomy of, of representation languages ordered by expressiveness, you know, so effectively putting the semantic spectrum on, on firm footing. And we can use different properties like um, soundness and completeness, uh, decidability and complexity, whether or not the language is monotonic or not, and any other kinds of model theoretic properties. Chris Menzel just mentioned a couple of, of more sophisticated uh, properties um, that, say, first-order logic has, other languages might not have. Uh, and, and, and so we were able to describe each of these languages with these various properties and then you know, be able to compare them in terms of expressiveness, um, so for their use as an ontology language. Uh, so final slide, uh, 37. Um, this, uh, as Steve was saying, this is funded by, uh, by the NSA under the, their HYPER um, uh, program. Um, the full report uh, was written um, by Conrad, uh, myself, uh, Don Libis, Josh LaBelle, and Eswarin uh, Subramanian. Uh, there's the URL there. Uh, that, that not only talks about the languages that we talked about today, but also other forms of inference, different kinds of inference, um, uh, and, and uh, other kinds of properties of, of the reasoning system. So just open up for questions. Thank you, Michael. This is Steve, and uh, yeah, I want to reiterate. Any, any questions? People press star three, I guess, right, Peter, if they want to talk? One, one to raise your hand, and when you're recognized, then uh, start three. Uh, actually, someone who's calling area code uh, has his hands up for a long time. Uh, so uh, if you do a star three, uh, please uh, re uh, identify yourself and go ahead. Got his hand got tired, I guess. <laughs> Sorry about that. I hope he calls back in. I, we just lost him. Um. Well, I will make one comment. This is Steve. That um, I guess Michael. Clearly, the implication here is that this uh, set of properties that you mentioned on slide 36 could be uh, a grounding for uh, something which could serve as some sort of uh, categorization, at least of the underlying languages, mm -hmm. to express ontologies, which we're in the process of collecting uh, examples of in, in the context of the Ontology Summit, right? Is that what you would but, suggest? Yeah, so, the, so there was the way of comparing the languages, but also um, one of the things that, that um, you know, again, that kind of came out of this was that um, in, in the uh, formal uh, arena, in the theoretical computer science arena, um, there are ways of talking about problems or, or concepts that are definable in one language or another. And this would also be a way of, of being able to compare or being able to kind of say, well, what's the minimal, the, 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 the weakest possible language that you can use to define a particular concept in an ontology? And that might be another way of doing a lot of ontology evaluation, ontology comparison. Another, and so I'm... I'm, I'm Guessing from that, then, that, uh, in fact, there's a pretty high correlation between the kind of thing you try and build, let's say, a thesaurus or a taxonomy, and the kind of language that's typically used to do it, or at least right. the kind of language that could be used to capture it, right? Right, right. And you, you could say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to use, you know, uh, first-order logic to define an, a taxonomy, general first-order logic, but, you know, there might be somebody else that doesn't use a, that powerful a language, but you know that they, you know, they have to use at least 
something that's uh, like I was showing before, that monadic first order logic. Right. Um, and, and and there are a lot of other concepts that you know if you can find that that weakest possible language, then that also provides a way of of kind of evaluating well what would the ontology need to look like. So then, to just follow that a little further, then so the question to ask, I guess, when confronted with an ontology and we're trying to place it, let's say, in this categorization scheme, is not so much what is the language that was used to define this ontology, but what is the weakest language that could have been used to define that yeah. ontology? Yeah, that's kind of one one thing that, that we could possibly do, yeah. I see. Okay. Anybody else have questions, comments? Mm. Wow. Peter Yamir, uh, I, I have a comment on your suggestion that as a community, we might sort of... Uh, get together and build some benchmark uh, problems as a sort of, uh, I mean, uh, to, to, to gauge whether certain languages or certain uh, maybe artifacts exactly actually categorize into certain, uh, certain slots. I mean, in a is what we're trying to do in the Ontology Summit 2007. Uh, is that sort of I mean, short of having logicians on hand, would that do you see that as being a very practical means to set up metrics, or at least the, the benchmark as uh, uh, our metrics for uh, actually placing these various languages? Oh, definitely. I, I think that, like I say, if, if um, one of the, the challenges that people have when building ontologies is when they say, well, you know, what, what, kind of, what language should I use to write this ontology in? Or, you know, or even what kind of tools should I use, which then has certain language biases built into it. And, and if they could say, well, you know, um, the ontolog community put together these benchmark problems, uh, you know, and here's this notion of taxonomy, and you know, here's this other concept, uh, part of, you know, the, the part of concept. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at my concepts, and, you know, some are in the taxonomy domain, some are in this part of domain, and then I can see well, what what's the you know the language that's the weakest possible language to write to capture those ideas, and that could serve to guide them uh, as to to determine what what kind of language they should use, what kind of tools they should use. But the, the idea would be that people would uh, recognize uh, their particular problem in this set of benchmark problems, kind of like a case-based sort of. Uh, of way of, of structuring it, because I think I think we as people we recognize examples uh, more readily, you know, than than definitions. And so, if we can provide these examples, these benchmarks, then I think that would uh, uh, be a very effective way of of you know kind of disseminating a lot of the formal work in ontologies. I, I really appreciate that suggestion, and uh, if. Uh, we, uh, I mean, on behalf of the Ontolog Forum, if we may oblige you into uh, kicking that off with a post into the Ontolog Forum, and hopefully others may uh, chime in, I think it would be wonderful. Okay, yeah. Very yeah, much that... Conrad, yeah. it's very good uh, and, and uh, ed very educational lecture that you just gave. Yeah, and I think uh, like Chris Menzel's work uh, with Pat on on the uh, you know axiomatic semantics of of web languages, semantic web languages, provides a very good place to start um, for identifying some of those benchmark problems. Great, thanks. Uh, we now have three hands uh, that that have been raised, and I believe the first one was from uh, a.
country code 44, that must be Matthew West, maybe. Uh, if you unmute your line with a star three and go ahead. Then we have two others, uh, one person who called in about like an hour ago, so he called in a bit late, uh, and then another person, uh, third person, you probably know who you are. So go ahead, Matthew. Uh, hello. So it endorsed what Peter was just saying. Um, thank you for the presentation. I really found that very helpful uh, to, to set things in place. And I agree with what Peter was that uh, uh, this is a, it would be a very cool direction to pursue. Yeah, great. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we can, um, like, also do is, is be very domain and concept-driven uh, in this kind of benchmark-building um, endeavor, right? I mean, if, if we can start saying, well, you're in the domains that we work in, you know, here are some very common, you know, generic co concepts that we encounter all the time, and then we can start saying, well, you know, yeah, the, uh, you know, what kind of language do you use to represent that? And, and what kind of language can we get away with representing that? If we can be very concept driven, I think it'll be, it'll be fantastic. Mm. Agree. Okay, the, uh, the next person, uh, uh, you, uh, you have further questions, Matthew? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, so, Go ahead, uh, the person who just unmuted himself. Yeah, Theo uh, Masakowski from Bremen. I have first a remark concerning uh, second-order logic. Yes. Not entirely true that you don't have a solid complete proof system for it, because work with Henkin semantics, you can even use higher-order logic and get a, a solid complete proof system. So. I'm not sure whether this is really useful for ontologies, but might might be at at least if you want to follow your criteria. So that's the first uh, remark. And then the question: uh, If you see all these different levels of expressivity, and there are embeddings from the lower levels to the the higher ones, mm -hmm. an interesting question would be whether you can re partially reverse these embeddings. For example, if you have a first-order ontology. Uh, can you extract a description logic approximation that is as strong as possible uh, as a logical theory, but still implied by by the <laughs> theory? So that if you want to use, say, a description logic reasoning system, you can still use it, while on the other hand having the full uh, first-order expressiveness. Uh, yeah, so yeah, following on that, that second point first, um, yeah, that, the, that notion of, of approximation uh, is a very good, uh, hot research topic. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in, in general, if, if we could take that kind of approach, that would also be another kind of perspective on, on, on this expressiveness. So, yeah, I would hardly endorse any, any kind of approach that does that. Um, with respect to the first point, um, I mean, it's the case of second-order logic. Uh, I mean, tr validity is not what you know is recursively enumerable. Um, yeah, with Henkin semantic, yes, because second-order logic with Henkin semantic is basically a first-order logic, if you wish. I, I think I, what, it, it's kind of a uh, this is Chris Menzel. It's kind of a second-order logic is is kind of ambiguous. Often people people often refer to second-order logic when they're uh, just if you have higher order quantifiers in the language, yeah. 
But as, as you know, Hank uh, uh, semantics for second-order languages is really completely first-order. Uh, yeah, exactly. It can be it can be translated directly into a into a first order into a first order theory, and so um, from from one perspective, if you take second order to indicate, as a lot of people do, a full second order semantics for the predicate quantifiers, then then the thing to say is that second order uh, that Hankin semantics isn't really a second order semantics, but some people prefer to refer to second order logic as as the use of higher order quantifiers, in which case you would say that you have a, a second-order uh, logic uh, that still has the, 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 the uh, completeness and the uh, properties yeah. of third-order logic. Right, but I, I thought that actually you, there's a difference between – so in second-order logic, there is one unique domain, the power set. Um, that's right. That's what right. But, but in Hankin semantics, you're not quantifying over that, that set. You're quantifying over all definable relations. Well, it Which is not the same as the set of all the power sets. Right. That's right. The, 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 the Hankin simply requires a subset of the, of the power set uh, that includes at least the definable relations. And But that's really, uh, it's, it's in terms of the, the kind of abstract characterization of first-order languages, uh, first-order uh, uh, logic that I gave before, that, that the second-order languages with a Hankin semantics count as... Yeah, yeah, because they, they yeah they satisfy Lindstrom's theorem, so that's, they're not really yeah right. yeah. That's right. Yeah, I just want to raise this point because there is a large community uh, uh, in computer science. Uh, we're dealing uh, using higher order logics for formalizing mathematics and and computer science problems, and usually these higher order logics are uh, meant with the Hankin semantics. So in a sense, they are first order. But they are, of course, richer because you have the type system and lambda abstraction and so on. So that right. might be useful in this line because uh, it's still first order, but it's a richer language. Yeah, and, and there, there's also a whole f uh, field in, in mathematics called reverse mathematics where uh, it kind of looks at, instead of using the full second order axiom of, of piano induction in piano arithmetic, you look at weaker restrictions of that, and you see what kinds of theorems you can prove with that weaker assumption. Um, and, and again, you're, you're, you're kind of doing that, that game of finding the weakest possible language that you need in order to prove a particular result. Um, and you, we could take a similar analogy. Just the weakest possible language you need to guarantee your ontology can answer a particular query. Hi, hi this is Ken Butzlowski. I have a question about, uh, this is a little farther down on your Spectrum RDF versus LDL. Uh, RDF has a um, has this feature of you know it's a reified logic I believe you called it. That's right. Yeah. And LDL does not. Is that correct? Um, no, that's correct. Yeah, it's L full that includes all of RDF. Um, so um, yeah, I guess that, no, that is a kind of a good point. Maybe that's an, a good argument not to have this semantic spectrum anymore, but to make it a little more of a of a partial ordering. Um, On the other hand, yeah. when you look at a specific ontology that might use this feature, it might be possible to recast it so it doesn't. So I guess it's a, it sometimes could be a difficult question to answer about where it sits in the spectrum. Um, well, no. So, I mean, to, to be correct, I mean, you're right. I mean, to, if, if we use this uh, line to represent the semantic spectrum and RDF is to the left of OWL, then that should mean that uh, OWL is 
more expressive than RDF. Now, um, I, actually, I can't remember in, in Chris in your axiomatic semantics paper. Um, do you can you show um, RDF uh, can be mapped into uh, LDL? No, there are things you can do in RDF that you can't do in LDL. Yeah. Yeah, see, so this would be an They're argument. kind of incomparable. Yeah, so this would be an argument for maybe generalizing the semantic spectrum away from a line and, and having a richer set of relationships there. Because you could have languages that are effectively incomparable, like RDF and and uh, and OWL. They're kind of incomparable. They can't, they can't represent each other. They can't uh, define terms uh, in terms of each other. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. Okay. Unfortunate news, of course, for those of us trying to come up with a nice, clean uh, <laughs> categorization, but anyway. Yeah, well, and actually there are a couple of other, of other things that, that do kind of get squashed in that semantic spectrum. So when it comes to swirl, the semantic web rules language, um, you know, syntactically, swirl is a restriction of, of, of first-order sentences, but many implementations uh, that use swirl actually are kind of logic programming oriented uh, implementations in which the case they have a non-monotonic semantics and in which case they are you know not uh, uh, a sub-language or restriction of first order logic so that's another kind of thing that gets a little fudged on that semantic spectrum as well yeah yes I've seen that with rule ml as well yeah so again if you were giving rule ml to a, a, a first order theorem prover vampire then it would, you know, then in that case you're using the semantics of first-order logic and it's then a, a restriction of first-order logic. But if you're using it with a prologue engine, then you have a diff- you're, you're really using a different semantics than first-order. Yeah. How do we capture that in the, in this spectrum? Yeah. Mean, how do we, how do we even say what it is? I mean, you, you basically have several semantics that could be associated with some of these languages. Yeah. Um, well, that's the debate that's raging in the rules community still, I think, on, in W3C is, uh, you know, people using the uh, uh, same syntax but ascribing different semantics to it. So, I mean, the most notorious thing is, you know, the meaning of not, right? Is not the classical negation or is it negation of failure that's the logic programming people use? So, you know, does that mean, um, you know, P is false or does it mean, well, either P is false or I can't prove P? Um, so you know, that debate, I think, hasn't really been settled in W3C. I don't know. It, I'm not sure we can wait until it is settled before we... <laughs> um, so maybe it would be easier just to, you know, separate that out as a, you know, as, as one aspect that, um, that one must consider in doing this uh, classification. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because you're, I mean, you're, if the whole point of, of, of building an ontology is so that people agree on the, the meanings of the terms, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we start using different inference engines that can lead to different, you know, either non-monotonic semantics or monotonic semantics, then we're kind of uh, cutting the, uh, pulling the rug out from underneath us here. So, uh, you know, maybe there, there does have to be an, uh, like another dimension almost in terms of, uh, the different kinds of semantics that can be used even with the same syntax. Yeah. It's okay, well, this is Steve. In the absence of any other questions, last chance, I don't want to uh, make everyone have to hang on for too long. 
But again, may, may I make one more comment? Okay. Uh, Peter Yim, again. Uh, since uh, we do have a task in front of us uh, for the ontology summit uh, to devise a framework whereby we can place not just ontology languages, but also other uh, artifacts or representations that people uh, refer to as ontologies. So, I mean, uh, most of our logicians are, are here, so may I uh, implore that maybe some of you start a conversation on the framework issue. Uh, Leo Obers started out with his 10 dimensions. Uh, there were a few more that came out in the discussion. Uh, actually, uh, on Tuesday, when we had our organizing committee meeting, uh, Mark Musen brought up a very good point, saying that, I mean, so far, most of the uh, classification in the framework drives toward uh, telling people, I mean, what good logic and what good representation is. I mean, we don't even... Uh, put into the framework things that would let other communities feel that they are on equal footing. For example, we did, did not have, I mean, in our framework, how easy it is to adopt uh, or what is the, the uh, adoption rate of uh, aspects of various languages. Uh, for example, uh, how many people are in the Foxonomy or Web 2.0 community versus how many people are in the Formal Logic community and, and so on. So we do want to have a framework whereby we can place all these things and I uh, solicit everyone's help here to get that framework discussion going and, and sort of bring that to closure uh, probably within the next maybe two or three weeks. So back to you, Steve. Okay. Well, I think that's constructive. So uh, uh, let me just wrap it up then. And again, thank you, uh, Michael and Conrad, for putting this together. Uh, I know we're all busy, so uh, that's, that's not without some cost, I know, and time to uh, prepare for something like this. But it's now part of posterity, which is great, because I know I'm going to be suggesting a number of people to go and listen to the audio archive when it comes up. So uh, with that, I think I'll, uh, I'll close up this session. And again, thank everyone for coming. Okay, bye-bye.